Good morning. Thank you. Uh, as you heard, this is going to be the, we just ended a series, and we're going to be going into a new series starting next week. So this is a good time to stick a one-off in here. And so that's what I'm doing. And I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do uh, when Brian asked me to come up with something, and I felt stuck. What a good opportunity. <laughs> Come up with a series about getting unstuck. So oftentimes we get stuck in our lives for, for any number of different reasons, different ways. Sometimes we get stuck mentally, emotionally, spiritually. As you see in this picture, you, there's a lot of questions that you have to answer sometimes, and you're not sure which way to go. Looks like there's promising direction in that way, or going this way might be a promising direction, and, and yet it turns out to be a dead end. And over time, it happens again and again and again. And sometimes you just feel like giving up. And you're just going to stop. I'm, I'm done with the, with the maze. At other times, we feel overwhelmed. That makes us stuck. Options in life, we have too many options. Uh, too much information. We get nagging by people. We, we're busy. We're so busy, we're, we're stuck. You'd think it's hard to be stuck when you're busy, but you get in a rut of doing the same thing over and over and over again. You're not really sure what's happening. And this poor lady is trying to figure out what cereal to get. I don't know if she's going for the kicks or the, or the fiber one. Seems like a big difference there. This aisle is, is indicative of, of so many decisions that we have to make in our lives that we're not sure what to do. Um, I've been married for almost two years now. And thank you. Um, and I've owned a house now for, I moved in last year at this time. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that you learn about another person when you're married to them for the first time and when you buy a house for the first time, because this is my first house. And there's a lot of decisions to make. And sometimes I feel a little overwhelmed with all this happening at once. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you who've been married for a long period of time are still finding things about your spouse that you're like, wow, I didn't know that was there. I didn't know that about them, and I'm only two years in. We have to deal with our schedules, trying to mesh our schedules and, and career decisions, life insurance, financial planning, regular money, how we spend it, because we were two different people, and now we're coming together as one. How do I lead my wife in our home? We have to get a new roof. It was hard to find insurance because our roof is so old when we bought the house, so I have to get quotes on getting a new roof. Our yard looks, well, kind of trashy. I take care of the lawn, I try and do the edging, but it looks pretty rough otherwise. So I try and get quotes on someone coming in and helping us deal with our yard. We have to deal with what kind of decor we want in our house and what kind of furniture. Right now we got a, a couch that doesn't seem to fit in the house. We can't get it in, it's in our garage. What do I do with this couch? Medical issues that we have to deal with, and appointments, and insurance, and other incidental house issues that, that come along. When I was young, I was overwhelmed by math. I can't tell you the number of hours we spent on my kitchen table with my dad, trying to figure out if a train leaves Boston at 6 o'clock at 40 miles an hour, another train leaves Chicago at similar time, whatever, what time are they? I don't care. <laughs> I'm not in Boston or Chicago. I'm in Philadelphia, and I don't ride the train. <laughs> hours we spent <laughs> my poor dad anyway this guy is probably doing his taxes I don't know I forgot to carry the two sometimes we get 
stuck physically. We're tired. Long, hard day at work. Long, hard week at work. Month at work. And you come in, you sit down, and you can't move. You do this as you watch the world go by you, but you can't even move your arms. You're so tired. Or you get stuck in the mud. You need a little muscle to help you get out. You go to a fair, and it's a beautiful sunny day. All of a sudden, you have a torrential rain, and this is what happens. We're stuck in the mud. At least they have a shovel. Or help is going to come, but it's going to take some time, and you're stuck for a long period of time. I heard a story, I think, last year about a traffic jam on I-78. The cars were stuck for 24 hours in the snow. 20, a day. I can't imagine that. I, do, I can tell you this, though. If I know I'm going to be going out in the winter on a, on a highway, I'm taking extra blankets, a bag full of food, water, and most importantly, toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we, we get stuck because we don't fit. Poor poo trying to get in, out of this hole, right? Or in the hole sometimes. Um, I know over, t over the past couple of years, I've been putting a little weight on. These are new shorts because my old ones didn't fit. That's my clothes. Sometimes we, we get stuck in our lives because of poor choices. I don't understand these choices. I'm not sure what this lady was thinking about. There's a lady behind her. I'm not even sure if she's stuck in there also or if she's just trying to get her out. Why? Why would you do that? And what is this guy doing? What is he even in? I had never seen that apparatus on a playground before because I didn't have him when I was young. I have no idea what that is. And yet, he did this to himself. And the funny thing is, there was a lot of pictures just like him of men and women stuck in this thing. I was shocked. But why would you do that? Why would you make a poor choice like, like that? Sometimes we try, legitimately try to do something, and we just happen to fail at it. This poor cat. I'm not sure what he was trying to do. Maybe he thought he could get onto this windowsill. Um, it's not deep enough, and so he needs help. He's stuck. Needs a little help from someone else. So today we're talking about trying to get unstuck from some biblical principles. Look, I'm not promising a magic bullet that all of a sudden if you apply these things, you're going to get unstuck like that. A lot of times God has us in a place to teach us something. And we need to be listening. But I want to try and give you some strategies. <clears throat> some things to think about when you find yourself in a place where you're not sure what to do. We're going to look at a couple of stories to help bring that to light. But first, let me take a moment to pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are and what it is <clears throat> that you're doing in each of our lives. I thank you that you would bring us here today, uh, whether you were here physically or watching online. <clears throat> or that maybe you brought it to someone online uh, months from now, Lord, whatever it may be, but that you have a message for us. I pray today that the words I would speak would not be mine, but rather they would be yours. Anything that I would say that is from me would be quickly forgotten, never to be remembered, but those things that are from you would be quickened into our hearts and into our minds, finding fertile soil in both places, that as we leave here today, we leave changed, looking more like your son, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> so today we're going to look at a Bible character who got stuck in life. Not something that they, they did, but something that happened, and they were stuck. They didn't know what to do. We're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 4. 
But before we get into this, before we read this, you'll notice that there's a name of a, a prophet there. And this is just a side note, really. And as I was reading this, doing my preparation, I looked at the Hebrew on this a prophet's name, and I realized I've been saying it wrong all this time. And maybe you have been too. We've been saying Elisha. It's actually Elisha looking at the Hebrew. Um, so figure that into reading it the next time. I'll try not to make that mistake here. It took some getting used to saying it differently. So we're in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. So what do we have going on here? We have a man who died who was a prophet. And when you think prophet in this case, we're not thinking the same kind of prophet as Jeremiah and Isaiah or even the minor prophets like Obadiah or Zephaniah. Um, those guys were literary prophets that, that wrote a lot. These prophets weren't really there to do a lot of writing. They were there to help people, but there's a difference between this woman's husband and even Elisha or Elijah. Uh, Elisha and Elijah were sort of bigger prophets that went around not for money and really focused on a lot of the um, spiritual aspect of the people at the day. Um, this particular man was really about helping people see their future. Um, and he would get paid for it. A lot of the prophets like his would get together and create a little group or a guild, and that's how they would get paid. <clears throat> and we see that he had a creditor, so he was getting paid and he was trying to pay back what he owed somebody. But he died and now he couldn't make money anymore. So now the mother with two younger children is stuck. She's not going to be able to keep the property because her sons are, are preteen probably and are going to be taken by the creditor to work off the money that's owed in sort of this indentured servitude. And she, the land will be sold, her house will be sold, and she won't be able to live there. So she's going to have to scrounge around just to maintain life at all. So she feels stuck, barely able to get by. So. What strategies do we see her employ here? The first one is I think she, she asked for help. She sought out somebody to ask for help. Now, this is not necessarily special to anyone specifically, but it's something that we need to do. We're, we're bad at it sometimes. We don't like to ask for help too often. We need to. It doesn't hurt to ask for help, especially when you're at a loss, a complete loss, you're at your wit's end. We're going to continue the story and see what else she does, starting in verse 2 through verse 6. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you, you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars as each is filled. Put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. So clearly we have a situation where the oil lasted longer than it should have. We just heard a story about fish and loaves doing the same thing. 
our focus is not the miracle here, although that is awesome, but it's really about the strategy that's happening here. And what did she do the second time is she, she trusted this person that she asked for help. The wise counsel. It seemed like a weird thing to do. You want me to go around to my neighbors, ask them for jars, hide myself in my house, and start just pouring the oil. What are you talking about? And yet, that's what she did without further question. So she trusted. So when we're stuck, sometimes we need to trust what people tell of us, even if we don't necessarily think it makes a whole lot of sense, if you trust that person. If you don't trust that person, who knows what's going to happen. So what was the result? We see in verse 7. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So the final strategy that we see here is that she followed the directions. I was bad at that growing up. But follow the directions. Not just trust, oh, okay, and sort of do your own thing. She followed the directions. It's interesting how not only did she have enough to pay off the creditor, but then had enough to live on so they could stay in the house. God does that with us. What he has offered to us is more than just a, a way for us to pay our debt, but a way to live according to his glory. I'm sure she was afraid, a little nervous. Fear is a powerful emotion and motivator. It's a terrible motivator, but it's powerful. It keeps us from, from being able to do things, and we get stuck. But it's oftentimes the underlying reason why we get stuck. In a lighthearted way, we see this in the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out, where you, you're faced with a, an option to do something or not to do something, but you kind of want to wait to see if something else comes along, because you don't want to do this if you could have done that. But in another way, a lot of times it shows up in perfectionism. And I know there's perfectionists in here, because it's just statistically the likelihood. And I started thinking about biblical characters and who's a perfectionist in the Bible. And I couldn't really think of anyone who was a perfectionist. What I could think of was a lot of characters who were imperfect. Pretty much everybody was imperfect. Jesus' genealogy is filled with imperfect people. But yet God used them, and he uses us. We are imperfect people. We can't allow the failure, the fear of failure, to keep us from moving forward. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of glossing over this idea of perfectionism because I only have you know, 30 minutes up here. But it's an important distinction to, to remember that we're going to fail. And we have to be able to move past that. We can't get stuck. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Love, live in power, love, and self-discipline. Not fear and timidity, because that's not what God has given us. I want to look at another Bible story. This one is going to be Paul and Silas. A couple of people who get stuck. 
the background of this is that this is Paul's second missionary journey. He is in what is current day Turkey, and the Holy Spirit and God seem to be keeping him from preaching to these people groups. And yet, at one point, he gets a dream, and a man from Macedonia is asking him for help. So he believes that that's what God is telling him to do, so he packs up Paul's posse, and they go over to Macedonia. They get there, they meet by the name of Lydia, who believed in God, but wasn't a believer in Christ, because the message of Christ hadn't gotten there yet. They were the first to bring it. She believed this message, and she was the first convert. She, was, she loved it, and she offered to have them stay at her home while they were there. And they were there for quite a while, for many days. And we're going to pick up our action in Acts 16, starting in verse 16. It says this, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Seems like a pretty good thing. <clears throat> the message of the gospel is being heralded. Hey, listen to these guys. They're giving you a way to be saved. Probably more of a mocking scenario, uh, as it was a demon. This young lady was demon-possessed. And it's happened for days and days and days and days, many days. Paul was getting fed up. He was tired of it. And so he exercised the demon from her. Come out of her in Jesus' name. And by command, he had to. Well, of course, the Roman owners of this girl were not too happy because now they just lost a great deal of wealth coming to them through this fortune-telling. So they dragged Paul and Silas to the Roman officials, told a bunch of lies about how they were inciting riots or whatever, and he wanted them imprisoned, basically. So here's what happened. Verses 23 and 24. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they weren't given much of a trial. If they had, they would have been fine because they were Roman citizens, and this is not how a Roman citizen would be treated. So there was no trial. They were flogged severely, thrown into prison. Now, jail at that time was a pretty terrible place. I mean, you might think it's a terrible place now, but at least there's some warmth. Maybe you can stay cool, you get food. You got none of that. It was a dark place. It was damp, it was wet, it was cold, it was filthy, probably vermin and insect infested. You were stuck there. I mean, you were really stuck. You didn't even get food. Brian was telling me that in these prisons, your friends had to bring you food. So if you didn't have friends, you were in trouble. And it's interesting that he tells them to put them in the inner cell. He, this guy puts them in the inner cell and chains them up. And the interesting part of that is that it, it's considered that the Roman magistrate were, were considering execution. I mean, this thing really escalated. And so that's where Paul and Silas are. 
potentially waiting an execution fate. These dudes are stuck. But here's the interesting view that we have of their mindset. Verse 29, or 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So here you have a couple of guys that were beaten severely, probably lost a lot of blood, probably in a lot of pain, absolutely exhausted. The bodies are probably even in shock. And what, what are they doing? Sleeping? In a coma, practically? Whimpering? Complaining, oh, woe is us? Their response was to praise and worship God was to sing hymns and songs, to pray. And not only were they doing that, they were doing it so loudly that they were keeping the other prisoners awake. So they had enough energy to do that. Very interesting. Additionally, these, these other prisoners were, were listening. And the context here suggests that they were focused. It's almost to the point of inclusion that they were believing what they were seeing, hearing, and maybe even joining in. We'll see what happens in a, in a moment. Psalm 46.10, many of you are familiar with it, uh, in the New American Standard Bible, starts by saying, cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving. Many of the Bible translations say, be still and know that I am God. To me, be still means, okay, you're going along, it says be still, okay, just stop. Okay, now what? Cease striving leads me to think, if, if you're planning something, you're, you're working away and thinking about how you want to do it and do this, and you need to move this person here, and, and you need to have this logistic in place, and God's saying, stop all of it. Don't just be still. Stop your planning. The psalm was written by, not David, but a guy who was involved in war. There's a lot of wars going on. And he's extolling the, the praise and virtue of God because he knows that it's God's battle. And God is saying, cease striving, cease your, your scheming, your plans. Know that I am God. Um, many of you know this, some of you may not, but I grew up in a Jewish home and I had my bar mitzvah at 13. What many of you may not know is, <clears throat> excuse me, that I went on for two more years of excuse me, religious education. Let me get some water. Which is actually called confirmation. So I went on to confirmation two years later. And one of the gifts that I got at my confirmation was basically the Holy Scripture, which for a Jew is just the Old Testament. They don't call it the Old Testament. <clears throat> And I thought it interesting to take a look at Psalm 46.10 to see what the Jews would say here. And this first part of 46.10 says, desist, realize I am God. Desist and realize I am God. And I think that's a pretty powerful statement. Stop and realize that I am God. I am the one at work here. But why? What difference does it make? Well, there's a cause and effect to this. And that is, the rest of the verse says, I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When you stop doing this, then people will know me. 
It's not up to you. It's up to me. That was the attitude of Paul and Silas. It's not up to them. It's up to God. So their attitude, their viewpoint, their perspective was different. That they could worship in their stuckness. They could pray in their stuckness. They had a different idea of what it was they were living for, not their own creature comforts. It's great when you have it. But it's almost as if they realized that they weren't just stuck in this place, but rather they were navigated there by God himself. We take a look at verses 26 through 28. It says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. No one escaped, though the opportunity was very simple. Remember, it was a dark prison. You can't see anything. The jailer didn't know that they were still there. He couldn't see would have been very easy for them to slip out. Did they believe what they were hearing and join in to the worship of God Almighty? Did they get a new perspective? Can't know that. Scripture doesn't, doesn't express that, but at least Paul and Silas understood that there was something greater that was part of the journey and what's interesting, additionally, is that the jailer and his whole family came to know Christ as well. It wouldn't have happened had they not been thrown into jail unjustly. I want to take a quick look at maybe Paul's view of this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's a very interesting mindset. I wish I had one as strongly. One of my favorite common, uh, commentators is Matthew Henry. He was a, um, a minister in the 1600s, 1700s. He did a commentary on the entire Bible and he goes into great depth. It can be a little hard to read, but it's impressive. I want to say what he says about this. He, meaning Paul, was willing to do anything or suffer anything that he might attain that resurrection. The hope and prospect of it carried him with so much courage and constancy through all the difficulties he met within his work. The desire for that resurrection carried him through everything that he went through. Well, I think it's important that we hear how Jesus views of it as well. 
And we see that in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. We see there the focus needs to be on Christ. The focus needs to be on the greater picture. Yes, we get stuck in our lives, and sometimes we get stuck in serious things. But keep in mind the greater picture, even still. We can't get bogged down by licking our own wounds and feeling sorry for ourselves. So I want to get into some applications. We saw some applications from um, the woman, but I want to get into some more applications that I, that I thought of as well. And I'm going to start with really the non-believer. Uh, the first three points are still valid. Um, asking for help, trusting, uh, hopefully a wise counsel, and, and following the, those directions. That makes sense pretty much for everybody. The next one, though, I want to add is to take a step back. Take a step back. Take a breath. Give yourself a minute to recollect yourself, to take a breather. It, it's almost like you need to get yourself right before you can really help other people sometimes. That's why they tell you in, in the plain safety uh, speeches that when the oxygen mask drop, you put it on yourself first and then help someone else. Well, that's what we need to do in our lives also. also. If you can't help other people, you're not helping other people. You have to get yourself in a good position. Maybe you need to step back. Say, you know what? Give me a minute. Just, just a minute. Tell you what. Okay, that seemed interminable, didn't it? Sort of weird, You're, nothing's happening on the stage? What's going on? Seemed like a long time. That was 15 seconds. <laughs> 15 seconds, and you're sitting there uncomfortable with the silence. But that's what you need to do sometimes, is to step back, remove yourself, tell your spouse, tell your significant other, Tell your children or tell your parents, I need a minute. Let me get myself recollected, all right? Let me get back to equilibrium. The next thing is to assess. Try to get a new perspective. What's really going on? I work at Dick's Sporting Goods as a bike tech, and I had a bike come in a couple of weeks ago. Clearly, the Rear derailleur, which changes the gears in the back wheel, was broken, as was the little piece of metal that, hang, that it hangs on. So I ordered the parts. They come in. I put it on the bike. It's not shifting correctly. I look at it. I go through some adjustments. Still not shifting. So I look at it from behind. Sometimes I look at it from the front. Make some adjustments. Still not adjusting. 
I'm getting frustrated. Put the bike aside. Let me, build, let me work on some other bikes. Clear my head. Bring that bike back. Try a few more adjustments. Nope. Let me look at it from this way. Nope. Looks the same. Still not adjusting. And I'm thinking, what this guy calls. He's like, I'm wondering where my bike is. Yeah, I'm wondering where your bike is too. I don't know what's going on. I can't figure it out. Finally, for some reason, I, I got down on my knees to, to do something. And I looked under, and I saw the cable looked like it was routing incorrectly. And I thought, that's weird. So I got up and changed it. It adjusted fine. Now it's perfect. I couldn't see the problem because I was in the wrong place. I had to look from under here up, something I hadn't considered before, which is why it wasn't working. But sometimes you need to step back and assess what's happening. Try and get a, re a real picture of what's going on. The next one is to start. Start something. Do something. Not rash or irrational, but start to take a step. You know, oftentimes we think about, oh, I gotta fix something. So we go like, all right, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna fix it. Nope. All right, let me go and fix it. And you feel like you're still stuck. Or because maybe you feel like if you try to take a big step, you're gonna fail, you don't take any step at all. Sometimes the step you need to take is that. It's a small step. I just have to do this. Sometimes it might be this. You might have to step backwards, sideways. Who knows? Movement is forward. Don't be afraid of doing that. And you know what? You might fail. You might find yourself stuck, stuck again. Keep employing the strategies. See what sticks. You don't know what you need to do sometimes. Uh, I took a motorcycle safety course uh, 20 years ago to learn how to ride a, ride a motorcycle because it looked like fun. And uh, one of the interesting things that they teach you is that <clears throat> when you're riding, because you have to be more defensive than someone in a car, you need to be a lot more aware of your surroundings. And you need to anticipate more than what other people are doing. And so you need to look ahead. You need to be unaware of what's on the side of you. And what they tell you to do is to try to separate potential hazards. You see a pothole in the, in the road. You see a car backing out of a driveway. If you're not paying attention, you try to veer around that pothole, you might run right into that car. How can you separate these potential hazards? Do you need to slow down? Do you need to speed up reasonably? But separate them as much as you can so you don't get yourself into a situation where you could get hurt. Sometimes your steps need to be like that. Take a look at what you have around you and try and separate the issues out a little bit farther. Give yourself some space. The final one that I have for the non-believer in particular is consider Jesus. He came for the people that are stuck. That's what we came for. You're stuck, you're imperfect, you're broken, whatever it is. He's here for you. He's not here for the perfect person, because guess what? There isn't any. You see, we broke the relationship with God, with our sin. We were separated completely, totally. 
We couldn't get back to him. But through Jesus Christ, we can. Through knowing what he did on the cross, how he took our sin on him, but rose from the grave apart from the sin to give us victory, the victory that he has, that gets us unstuck eternally. Because you don't want to be stuck on the day of judgment not knowing Christ. That's a bad time to get stuck. Because that's eternal damnation. Eternal torment in hell. Maybe you're thinking, oh, that's far off. I don't know. I don't know that it's far off. But that's a scary premise. Start getting right with God. Start talking to Him. Start those small steps. It won't necessarily solve all your problems like that. God can certainly take some things out of your life quickly, and he might take it out of your life like that. But if he wants you to understand what faith, living by faith is like, you're probably still going to have to stay stuck in some cases. It's part of the journey. Look at the greater issue of God's glory for the believer. Uh, the first three points are still certainly valid. Ask for help. Trust the wise counsel that you get. And then follow the directions faithfully. Uh, four through six for the other one is, is for the non-believer is also valid, certainly, for us as believers. But I want to offer some other options other than just stepping back, assessing, and, and starting. Number four would be to pray. Now, you think, well, Scott, I, of course I pray. It's, it's kind of a silly um, option here. Well, when you're stuck, sometimes you get tired of praying. I know I've been there. Like, God, I've been praying about this thing again. Can, can we not do this? Can I have some victory over this? What's going on? I almost don't even know what to pray anymore. I'm so stuck. So one of the things that I tried doing was I started praying for other people. I wasn't praying for myself. I was stuck. Let me pray for someone else who might be stuck also. And I started praying for people I know who were going through some, some issues. I started praying for some co-workers. They don't know Christ, but I can certainly pray for their salvation. I can also certainly pray for the things that are going on in their lives that are difficult, and they don't have Christ. There are times I pray for strangers. I mean, in retail, you're, everyone's a stranger just about. Coming in and telling me their life story, in some cases. Way too much information on some people. But I work in exercise. So people are telling me about their pain, and their this, and their that, and their operations, and now their rehab. And, all right? I'll pray for you at some point. I might tell them I pray for them. I might not tell them that's not the point of the story here, but the point is that I pray. And what I have found is that I'm getting unstuck because I'm not praying for me. I'm relating with God. I'm relating with God. Not about me, about others. That's what God came to do. He came for others. So maybe pray for others. Get involved in small groups. This is a great place to learn of problems that people have. 
We, we have a great small group. We, we pray for each other. We're starting up new, a new small group, right, Brian? There's a new one starting up? Yeah. Right? There's a new one. Let's get, let's get more people involved in small groups to rub shoulders with each other and, and live life in the dark times. And even in the bright times, of course. Let's praise God with each other also. The fifth one, read the Bible. Again, you're saying, well, I do that. Or maybe you're sitting there convicted, oh, I don't do that. I don't know. But sometimes we're stuck in a rut, and the things we've been reading aren't really doing the trick. So I say atypically. What does that mean, atypically? It uh, means in a way that you're not used to doing it, in an unusual way. Maybe you need to pick a, a story or a Bible uh, book that you've never read before. I mean, how many people have read Joel? There's a couple people, very few. Maybe you've read the entire Bible. Maybe there's a, a book that you haven't read in a long time. Right? So go to a chapter. Look, at a, look for a particular um, character. Read something different because what you were doing before maybe wasn't working. Read your Bible atypically. Read it at a different time of the day. Carve out different time. That can matter. If you're used to doing it in the morning when you're half asleep, maybe do it in the afternoon when you're a little less asleep. And then finally, faith. I know it sounds cliche. Step out in faith. Again, we're doing it without fear and timidity. Power, love, and self-discipline. God is looking for your obedience for his glory. That's not necessarily a comfortable time. We find ourselves stuck in, in things, and we have to rely on him, which is what he expects of us. When we live for his glory, we're less likely to feel stuck. Not to say that we're not stuck, but we're less likely to feel stuck because our mindset has changed. Paul and Silas, sitting in this terrible jail, do they feel stuck? Sure didn't feel like they felt stuck. They felt like there's an opportunity. And it might be easier to get out of your stuckness. So what is your perspective? Who dominates your perspective? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are, what it is you're doing in our lives. I pray that your message came through today, Lord. The words that were heard here were yours, not mine. That you removed me from the equation. That you would be heard. That you would be known. Help us, Lord, as we deal with our lives where we feel stuck. I pray that some of these opportunities to get unstuck, that we would be able to follow these strategies. That we would see the success, that we might glorify you and praise you and share who you are and how you've helped us get unstuck. I pray for those who maybe don't know you, that, <clears throat> that they would not get stuck on the last day, not knowing you. Bring them to a knowledge of you, Lord, because you're the one that matters. All the glory belongs to you and you alone. We just thank you so much, Lord. You are so worthy. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.